0: This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 27th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the sister journals. First up this week, news intern Rachel Fritz discusses a new way to think about endometriosis, a painful condition in which tissue that normally lines the uterus grows outside the uterus and it can bind to other organs. Next, researcher Raphael Townsend talks about predicting how RNA will fold into 3D shapes using deep learning This is a machine learning approach that relies on very few examples and limited data. Finally, in this month's edition of our limited series on race and science, host Angela Saini is joined by author Lundy Braun to discuss her book, Breathing Race into the Machine, The Surprising Career of the Spirometer, From Plantation to Genetics. Now we have news intern, Rachel Fritz. We're gonna talk about Some new insights into endometriosis. Hi, Rachel. Hi, how are you? I'm good. This is an interesting disorder. This is when the lining of the uterus, which is shed during menstruation and then grows back kind of cyclically. It also in endometriosis starts to grow outside the uterus, which can create some painful problems, scar tissue buildup, even binding up of other internal organs. How common is endometriosis, Rachel?
1: Yeah, so it's a surprisingly common disease for one that I think a lot of people haven't actually heard of. It impacts an estimated one in 10 women, um, which is equivalent to 190 million women globally. And and it could be even as much as one in eight.
0: What are the treatment options for endometriosis at this point?
1: The treatment options at this point are not great. Basically, there are two major ways that endometriosis can be treated. First is you can have a pretty invasive surgery to actually go in and try to cut away this tissue that's built up kind of around the outside of your uterus and internal organs to try to combat that buildup, but because it's cumulative, often just one surgery isn't going to solve the problem. So many people who suffer from endometriosis will have to undergo multiple of these invasive surgeries. And then the second option is hormonal treatment. So that's just trying to get at the fact that this tissue is trying to build up and shed during menstruation, just like it would within the uterus. And so the hormone treatment is trying to disrupt the menstruation cycle. This kind of treatment, it can have a lot of adverse side effects and different people may or may not respond to different kinds of hormone treatment. So they can be cycled through different ones, and the process can take months, and it can involve all of these really horrible side effects. And at the end of the day, none of them might work. So it can be a very frustrating thing to live with.
0: Let's turn to the work that you talk about in this story. So this actually started back in the 90s.
1: Yeah, this dates back, To the 1990s, when researchers really started to look into this idea that endometriosis has at least partially this genetic basis. So it's 50% heritable, which means that 50% of the risk of getting endometriosis is actually explained by genetics. But researchers had to figure out if they could pinpoint which genes
0: were actually involved. So do they have to find family lineages where the women had endometriosis?
1: There's this group of families where at least three of the women have endometriosis. And these families have been involved in research that goes back to the 1990s. And so a lot of this genetics research has been focused on these families, especially trying to dig into this heritable component of endometriosis by comparing their genes to those of the general population. In the end, this particular study sequenced the DNA of women in 32 different families. They also took this more large scale once they had narrowed down to a particular region of a particular chromosome where they went to the population level and actually looked at more than 3,000 endometriosis patients and compared their genes to roughly 7,000 people who don't suffer from endometriosis and tried to see where there might be
0: variations. What did they find when they looked across all these genomes? they really
1: narrowed down to this one particular gene called NPSR1. And they found that in populations with endometriosis, there were these variants that were just popping up more. And NPSR1 is actually a gene that's known to kind of be involved in inflammation just in general, but it hadn't really been implicated in endometriosis in particular before. So they decided to try to see if they could inhibit the gene's protein production and see if they could notice a difference.
0: So they turned the gene off, I think, in mice in the first case? Yeah,
1: so they turned the gene off in mice Mice don't menstruate, but they can create these mice in the labs that show similar symptoms to people with endometriosis. So they did target this particular gene in mice, and they did find both a reduction in inflammation and a reduction in pain, which is two of the major things that people who suffer from endometriosis would benefit the most from.
0: So now we have some variants in hand that are associated with endometriosis, and we've seen some effects in these mouse models. What happens next? We're still a ways
1: off having a drug that can target these genes and provide an alternative to the hormonal drugs. But this is really one of the first times a research group has found a potential gene target that could eventually pave the way to something that is a non-hormonal treatment. So the next steps for this particular gene are basically to study it more in non-human primates like macaques and try to just kind of understand it more as a gene where it's expressed and, and why it might play a role in endometriosis.
0: Right. So does the protein have a role? Is the protein not being made correctly? All those kinds of questions. Right. Despite that, this variant popped out from the study. It's not in every... Person who has endometriosis, right?
1: They really found this associated with what's called stage three or stage four endometriosis, but definitely not everybody who had endometriosis in the study showed that they had this variant. And also, it could potentially pop up in people who don't have endometriosis. Endometriosis is still a really complex and mysterious disease that researchers are are really just starting to dig into and learn about. So this is one gene. It's one piece of the puzzle, but it's not the whole picture yet.
0: Thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Rachel Fritz is a news intern for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed and a link to the Related Science Translational Medicine paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Raphael Townsend about using deep learning to predict RNA folding. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peace building, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast Network of International Researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. You may be familiar with protein folding. Proteins are made of chains of amino acids, and the sequence of these components affect how the chain folds, and once it does, you get a working protein. You may not know that RNA can do the same thing. A lot like proteins, 3D-folded RNA has functions, like catalyzing reactions or changing gene expression, even detecting small molecules. But unlike proteins, RNA has fewer building blocks, just four bases versus 20 amino acids. At the same time, in the genome, there are a lot more RNAs coded for than proteins. Despite its importance, we know a lot less about how RNA folds into 3D structures. Raphael Townsend and colleagues wrote about a machine learning approach to predict RNA folding this week in science. Hi, Raphael.
2: Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. So why do we know so much more about protein folding than RNA folding?
2: So uh, one simple answer to why we know so much more about protein folding, really, than RNA folding is that the field as a whole has really focused a lot on the problem of protein folding for a long time. There's been this sort of classical view that proteins are really the central workhorse of the cell, which is, you know, definitely an accurate picture in many ways. But only recently have we really been starting to turn on to the fact that RNA does adopt well-defined 3D structures that perform a wide range of interesting functions.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And there's also this issue that proteins have relatives, I guess you would say. They have sequence similarity across large classes.
2: Yes. So there's definitely a lot of similarity between different kinds of proteins. And there's a little bit of this sort of momentum effect going on as well, where once you get a few protein structures, you can use those to start modeling other protein structures through a process known as homology modeling.
0: In this paper, your team used a neural network for predicting RNA folding. And instead of starting with a giant data set, you know, tens of thousands of structures, you used 18 for input. And you didn't enter very many specifics about RNA structure as we know it. Why would you present so little information? I mean, there is more out there. There are more structures out there. You could have said, oh, if you see this sequence, it forms a twist. If you see this sequence, it's going to have a hairpin. Why did you withhold information as you were teaching this neural net how to make these structures or how to predict these structures?
2: Yeah, so there's really a sort of two parts to that answer. On the first hand, really, what we did is we sort of carefully selected the initial data set we trained on to contain various common motifs seen within 3D RNA structure. So there was a little bit of a careful amount of data curation going on on the one end. The sort of other aspect of all of this is really the sort of key assumption that ends up coming into play within various machine learning algorithms, which is how many assumptions do you want to encode into your algorithm? Traditionally, machine learning, when it is fairly data poor, when there aren't that many examples to train on, you want to put a lot of assumptions into the algorithm so that essentially it can start making useful predictions without needing to look at millions of examples. For example, for training self-driving cars, you need millions of images to train an algorithm that can correctly detect pedestrians versus not Mm -hmm. in this case, really, because the data is fairly limited, you need to start being clever in terms of what assumptions you do build in. But you don't want to build in too many assumptions, because then you start sort of hampering the algorithm, really. And so the assumptions that we did build in was sort of this knowledge of the rules that physics obeys. A very simple one is really that if you rotate a molecule, it's still the same molecule. The laws of physics are invariant to rotations
0: you put in the atomic coordinates of all the atoms rather than then you didn't actually say this this is a base. Does that matter?
2: That is a very interesting aspect. We definitely did not encode in the fact that we were looking at specific bases. And really this comes back to the fact that while the bases are definitely a very useful unit of RNA structure to understand. At some high level, really, you, you could just instead have the algorithm rederive which aspects of bases are important and which ones are not relevant to the prediction of 3D RNA structure, right? And that's sort of the beauty of a lot of these machine learning algorithms, is given enough data or the correct problem setup, it can re-derive which pieces are important of RNA structure from scratch in a way that if you directly encoded bases instead, that certainly would be a useful piece of information but it might not be exactly the right piece of information.
0: Why is this called deep learning?
2: So that's really building off of the long history of machine learning at this point, where early on, there would be these machine learning algorithms, such as support vector machines or random forests or what have you, with all sorts of fanciful names. Essentially, people would derive high-level features to represent their input data. For example, these bases or something like that, you could imagine coming up with a bunch of like individual pieces of RNA structure that you as an expert in RNA structure might think are important, like base pairing, right? watson Crick base pairs versus non-canonical base pairs, hydrogen bonding networks, all sorts of fun things. And while those things are certainly useful, they essentially amount to educated guesses as to which things are really driving RNA structure. Where deep learning comes into play is instead of deriving these high-level features, you give it the most raw input possible, really just the atomic coordinates, and then you train multiple layers of a machine learning algorithm to derive on its own which aspects of your input data are the most relevant. And so that's really where the name deep learning comes from, is you have this depth of machine learning being applied that can go from the raw input data to the final prediction you're interested in making all in one shot.
0: How did these predictions fare? How did it compare with other approaches, either the experimental approaches or with other computers or teams that have tried to predict RNA structures?
2: I want to be very clear that the experimental methods are still the gold standard, really. When you're evaluating a computational algorithm, you have to compare its prediction to something. And these days it's sort of like, how well can you replicate the experimental data that you're getting? Because if you can do that accurately, now you're talking about going from a year or a month worth of a highly trained graduate student's time to a couple hours or even less to predict a single structure, which can be a real game changer if you get that correctly. In terms of being able to compare to other computational methods, and this is part of what we're very excited about here, is that we've seen that we're able to consistently outperform all other groups or teams working on this problem, you know, on the prediction of RNA structure. And what's pretty exciting about this is we're sort of seeing a similar trend to that that we've seen happen in the protein structure, protein folding land, where there was sort of this slow, gradual progress over the last several years based on the broader academic community. But suddenly, once you started training the right sorts of machine learning algorithms, you had a bit of a breakthrough where suddenly you were getting double the improvement that you expected over over year over year basis. And then a couple of years after that, the problem was essentially, depending on who you're talking to, could be considered solved at least for single proteins.
0: How would you say the status of the RNA folding prediction is now compared to say protein folding being almost solved, we'll say?
2: So I definitely think that RNA structure prediction, RNA folding is further off than protein structure prediction. The problem is most certainly not solved. And while our algorithm definitely represents sort of a a breakthrough in terms of the net change in ability to predict these things, it's still far off from being able to always give you the correct answer. However, the part that's pretty exciting about this is I think this was a little bit what I was alluding to with the protein structure prediction problem was that the progress in RNA structure prediction had been fairly stagnant for the last decade or so. I mean, there were small improvements here and there, but what's sort of interesting is some of our data that we're looking at is it seems like we've had a little bit of a breakthrough in terms of the net change in how well we're doing. And this was sort of similar to the change that we saw in protein structure prediction two years ago. And so there's a sense that we might be on the path to fully nailing this problem in fairly short order.
0: There's also some additional gains in the machine learning side of things, too, from this research that you're talking about. If you're only doing atomic coordinates, I can see it applying to many different kinds of structures.
2: Certainly. And that's definitely one of the aspects that we're very excited about. A large part of the theme of my PhD was actually training machine learning methods that could be applied to a wide range of different problems involving biomolecular structure. In fact, you know, one line that I've been saying for a long time, sort of as an evangelist almost of this field, <laughs> is, you know. You know, machine learning has classically succeeded in computer vision, where you have the pixel, right? But it's also succeeded in natural language processing, where you have the character for things like Google Translate or things like that. And really, you should consider the Atom as a sort of first-class machine learning data type, something that you can really train machine learning models on for a whole range of different problems. Really interesting. There's thoughts that you could use it for screening new drugs looking at DNA, looking at interactions between different kinds of biomolecules, all sorts of things.
0: Going back to RNA just for a moment here, what can we do with all this RNA folding knowledge? Say we get closer and closer to, you know, being able to predict them, we get tens of thousands of new structures. How is that useful to the field?
2: First of all, just from a fundamental biology perspective, our understanding of RNA structure just generally is much less than that of protein. So if you can fold many more RNA structures or actually reason about the shapes they're taking on, that starts shining a lot more light on you know the basic functioning of RNA. Another sort of direction that people have been excited about in the last few years is that of designing therapeutics that can target RNA directly. And this gives you a way of tackling diseases that were previously undruggable at the protein level. Mm
0: -hmm. Are you able to learn more about how RNA folds the principles of it from this process? Or are we kind of in the black box phase right now?
2: People have spent over a decade hand designing energy functions for evaluating RNA structure. And now we have this machine learning algorithm that's doing better. And so a very natural question to ask is really, well, what is it learning? what is coming out of it? And so we started doing some analysis in the paper where we see that like certain very important aspects of RNA structure sort of spontaneously emerging from what the algorithm has learned. You know, you mentioned bases, right? That's something that is coming out of the algorithm, base pairing or hydrogen bonding or things like that. These are all things that uh, we are pretty excited to see were pretty naturally popping out. The algorithm itself was just determining those were relevant. However, there's a sense that there are things that are less classically well understood that the algorithm has learned. And we'd love to be able to back out even more what those aspects are and potentially then go back and give the RNA biologist fundamental insight into what drives RNA structure.
0: Right. So finding motifs and then you can go all the way back to the DNA and see them and then you can pick out other functions and where they are in the genome.
2: Mm -hmm, Exactly.
0: Very
3: cool.
2: I mean, just as a point of clarification, definitely that's a very open area of research, how to derive (laughs) the principles from your learned algorithms. I like to refer back to computer vision a fair bit because it was sort of my home turf for a long time. But, you know, there's a sense that unlike in computer vision, where it's like you derive it and like, okay, my algorithm has picked up. There's cats in this YouTube video or something. If you can say, oh, this specific motif in RNA structure is really important. That's something that is just not known to us ahead of time, unlike the fact that there's cats in YouTube videos.
0: Yeah, it's pretty easy for you to double check that they're seeing what you think they're seeing, rather than some invisible signature in the video file that the AI is glomming onto that you're not aware of and is now somehow important to identifying cats, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Thank you, Raphael.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Raphael Townsend has a PhD in computer science from Stanford University and is founder and CEO of Atomic AI. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Next, we have the latest in our series of book interviews on race and science. This month, journalist and host Angela Saini talks with author Lundy Braun about her book on a medical device called The Spirometer.
3: Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist and host of this series of books, podcasts looking at science and race. This is episode two, And this month I'm joined by Lundy Braun, Professor of Medical Science at Brown University. Her work focuses on the historical role of science in the production of racial hierarchies. Her 2014 book, Breathing Race Into the Machine, explored this question through the lens of a single medical apparatus, still common today, the spirometer, which is used to measure the movement of air into and out of the lungs, once described as a person's vital capacity. On the surface, the spirometer looks like a precision, value-free device. It's just there for taking measurements. But as Braun shows in certain hands from the 19th century onwards, it also became a tool for reinforcing the myth that there were profound physical differences between races on the inside. In fact, for decades, its data was used by scientists and physicians, mainly in the US and South Africa, to claim that black patients had naturally weaker lung function. This led to what is known as race correction, adjusting what is seen as biologically normal for a patient depending on their race. The spirometer became one tool of this enterprise. Braun writes, race became invisibly entrenched in the hardware and software of the machine. Lundy, thank you for being here. First of all, can you tell us a little about the history of the spirometer and how it evolved into this gauge of human difference?
4: When I first read about the race correction of spirometry, it was through biomedicine and it was in the newspaper. There was a big article in the Baltimore Sun and then it was syndicated to my local paper. And I thought this was a little odd but I had no context for understanding it. There was a massive lawsuit going on and it was very, very contentious. So it was followed closely in the Baltimore Sun, the entire lawsuit for years and years and years. And the lawsuit was in general about compensation for all the damage that had been done to people, mainly shipyard workers around Baltimore, but not exclusively the damage to their lungs over their work life.
3: So, Lundy, just to fill listeners in here, in 1999 there was an American materials company in Baltimore which had been accused of exposing workers to asbestos, damaging their lungs, and they brought race into this lawsuit. Um, So, as you explain in your book, the lawyers for this company claimed that black workers should need a higher level of disability rating to qualify for a claim because their lung function was naturally lower because of their race. And as you write, this affected a lot of people.
4: This one was, I think, 11,000 people were suing the industry. 1999 was the first time that race correction was brought in to the debates.
3: Why did that strike you as interesting that, that race correction was being used in this kind of way? What well, was really the language? I thought
4: it was so weird. I mean, how could you correct for race? I had no idea it had a history, none. And I went to a good friend who's an occupational physician. He gave me a whole stack of papers, all highlighted to look at. And he said, Yeah, we race correct. This was normal within the field with very, very little only occasional contestation, but the American Thoracic Society and the U.S. government actually for cotton workers mandated race correction.
3: So this is a very real and relatively recent phenomenon that a race correction meant that workers who were being exposed to damaging chemicals like asbestos were being denied the same levels of compensation or even the possibility of compensation because they were seen to be racially different And in your book, what you do is you go into the history of this. So how did the spirometer then come into this picture?
4: The appeal to the spirometer was that it gave numbers. And what I think it's actually important to see is that this is the science. It's being used, absolutely. But the social is shaping the science, which is what it always does. Scientists are part of the social world. And they're going to bring the social world with all the prejudices that exist into their science. I think what's what's interesting about the spirometer and lung capacity is why didn't it get questioned more? As I've written, the only major people to question it was two leading Black intellectuals, W.E.B. Du Bois from sociology, but you know, you couldn't pin him down in terms of his intellectual pursuits. And then Kelly Miller, who's a mathematician, M.B. Ball, a black physician in the 19th century. And then there was nothing.
3: But among those people were, as you mentioned, the Howard University mathematician, Kelly Miller. What were his arguments then? What, what argument did Miller make for the differences that were being seen with this barometer?
4: So both Miller and um, Du Bois, writing at the same time, made an argument for social conditions to reduce it. Miller produced a pamphlet, and it was addressed specifically to Frederick Hoffman's book, Race, Trace, and Tendencies of the American Negro. And it's a vicious, vicious book. He was statistician for Prudential Life Insurance Company for, for decades. Both Du Bois and Kelly Miller saw this book as important enough, was reviewed in science, etc., to issue a very stringent critique. But to boil it down, they both argued in different ways that social conditions produced poor lung capacity.
3: And this is known these days in medicine as a social determinant of health. So how you live, the job you do, the environment you live in, how you're treated, which as we're starting to understand in medicine, can all have a very profound impact on individual health, particularly among those from lower socioeconomic groups, immigrants, and minorities?
4: I think this is an important moment. I think the questioning of algorithms, as they get introduced, they're questioned pretty quickly now. And there is a major social determinant movement. I do think what we have to be careful of is to think that a determinant produces poor lung capacity. So you see this in the literature. I use it myself a lot, but we have to think about how conditions are not necessarily measurable. So we want to be attuned to both what's measurable and measure it and demonstrate that. But I I think the real challenge is how to keep our minds focused on what's not measurable. And that's what carried me through the project is because I reviewed all the scientific evidence and produced a paper on that. Only 17% of the papers I reviewed defined race. And I've had scientists say, well, you just know it when you see it. Or when I would question in a clinic, how did you know what race somebody was? The response was uncomfortable, but said I just eyeball it. So I guess... I would say there's more discomfort, whether we're going to really be able to shake the conceptual foundations is what's important right now.
3: So scientists and physicians have for so long been observing differences, ascribing them to race, but then not recognizing that race is not a biological grouping. They're not looking to complex social factors to explain these gaps. Uh, Why do you think it has been so important to them to believe that these differences must be innate, that people are born with them? Why have they clung to this idea?
4: I think scientists were people of their time. In the 19th century, they certainly were very involved in categorizing or producing the category of "quote unquote" mulatto. They were heavily involved in census categories, etc. So, I think the question is why couldn't scientists see through this? But we're reproducing it over and over. You know, I'm sure you know there's a lot of debate about. Race correction of kidney function, race correction of fetal growth factors, um, concussion, et cetera. It just is on and on. Some of it is under the rubric of social justice.
3: yeah, well, there is a, that argument there that I have seen ethnic minority and black physicians make that we need to understand the differences in order to to help people in different ways, and why do you think that's a dangerous road to go down?
4: It first of all assumes. Difference and the difference is often based on really small sample sizes. We see this with COVID. Things are in the newspaper with sample sizes of eight. It's really incredible. And that's true historically. But what's problematic for me is that they view difference as innate. So if you view Black difference and white difference as biological, then you're not going to look at The environment. And I think for lung capacity, what's been overlooked profoundly is pollution. Even though we have lots of evidence about pollution, we know where minority populations live in the U.S. And this is true worldwide. I have more exposure to pollution. And yet those two aren't brought together. And I think the idea of innate difference that we have now measured for
3: centuries is hard to overcome. So even, even to this day? Even to this day. It is still routine for medical researchers and physicians to use these kind of race corrections or to assume innate differences. We know what was motivating scientists in the 19th century, which is the kind of politics of slavery and, and segregation at the time. What is motivating them now?
4: I mean, many people will say social justice. I think one point I want to make is, quote, unquote, race correction or adjusting for race looks different now than it did in 1974 when the correction factor was introduced. Now people are using population standards. But if you take those population averages and look at them, they're basically, they're hierarchical with white people on top. So you still have white people having the best lung capacity and the idea of any difference has not been jettisoned at this point. So the why is an important question to keep pushing on. And I have thought about it you know, for years and years. And I think it's very hard for scientists to get out of the society in which they live. And you wouldn't see it popping up everywhere, algorithms with racial difference embedded in them, if there wasn't an idea that racial difference was deep, biological, and measurable.
3: Really at the heart of your book is this idea that just because something can be measured, that doesn't mean observations are purely objective or value-free or free of politics. Um, What are the lessons in that history for modern-day researchers then?
4: One of the important lessons I would take from this work, so I had been trained in science, I had also been trained in humanities, and then did a fellowship with NSF that allowed me to take a year off and actually look into this from another other perspectives. I think my interdisciplinary background was extraordinarily helpful, and I do think that we need to build interdisciplinary thinking into the sciences, not just some no quick and dirty science, but something that looks at the debates that have gone on in science, what was at stake in those debates? And that is what held my interest for about fourteen years or more.
3: Thank you, uh, Lundy Braun, for your time. And thank you at home for listening. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode in the series in which I'll be interviewing Alondra Nelson, author of The Social Life of DNA. That'll be one month from now.
0: And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby, and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice?